Welcome to Return to Roshar, where we speak again the ancient oaths by going through Brandon Sanderson's Stormlight books and put everything into a wider Cosmere context. So, a spoiler warning is in effect for every Cosmere book published at the time of recording, and that means up to Rhythm of War for now. And this episode, we are joined by myself, Kevin, Leia. Hi, I'm Leia. And Dee. Hello, hello. And we'll be doing a deep dive into Eshenai's point of view for the night of Gavilar's assassination. This is Leia again. I'm going to give you a synopsis of the prologue to Oathbringer. The title of that chapter is Two Weeks. At the opening of the chapter, Eshenai meets humans on her adventures, which ultimately leads to the Parshendi signing a treaty in Kolinar. After offloading the drums, Eshenai goes exploring in the castle. She happens upon Gavilar meeting with five people. She is invited in to talk to him, where he asks her to bring a message to the five. He wants to bring back their gods. He also gives her a void sprint gemstone. She protests but ultimately does pass on the message to the five. The five plus Esh and I vote to have him assassinated. And then D, I think you wanted to give us a nice little read-in. Yes, I can do that for us. So as was mentioned, I am D. Hi D. Hello. Um, and this is the prologue that is one of my favorites because it's a little juicy. There's not a lot of pages to it, but there is how to say there's a lot of uh, undertext information, a lot of things that are hiding beneath the surface that you really got to read the series a few times to get at. And so it starts with the prologue to Weep six years ago. Eshenai had always told her sister that she was certain something wonderful lay over the next hill. Then one day she'd crested a hill and found Humans. She'd always imagined humans, as sung of in the songs, as dark, formless monsters. Instead, they were wonderful and bizarre creatures. They spoke with no discernible rhythm. They were clothing more vibrant than carapace, but couldn't grow their own armor. They were so terrified of the storms that even when traveling, they hid inside vehicles. And most remarkably, they had only one form. And that's all I had marked out to read, because that's kind of the succinct little synopsis of what we get here. It's They were rediscovered by the listeners, so now we get the direct reference to humans being the dark, formless creatures. I like that you did point that out, though, that it is essentially what we find out towards the end of the book, that they sing about the humans and their dark, formless monsters. They are the Voidbringers, effectively. I'm honestly shocked that he didn't put that word in there, because yeah. that would have been, like, yeah, the perfect time for it, honestly. And everybody would have just glazed over it as they were reading oh, yeah. through the first time. Oh, totally. As we have so many things. But I did love... Because we're so used to the human perspective and, you know, all the humanoids kind of look the same and the Parshendi are the quote-unquote odd-looking ones. So her perspective on what the humans look like, doing that mental mind shift, it's really fun reading that. It's also a, it's a stark reminder that 
what we get from Renarin later on, that humans don't really belong on this planet. Like, I mean, humans being humans, we can survive anywhere. We just take over and force everything to adapt to. We change nature to adapt Mm -hmm. to us rather than us adapt to it. Mm -hmm. Whereas the the whole nature of Roshar over the millennia has been the exact opposite. So the next thing I have highlighted after Ashonai thinks to herself that the humans only have one form, I don't have anything highlighted until the next page because she's basically just describing the scene Mm -hmm. and what is humming along the way, which that is my favorite part about all the listeners and singers is the constant different musical emotions. Yes. I love that too. It's like, it's similar to like how like Brandon will just on occasion throw out a different culture that does physical, emotional, like demonstration a little bit different, like with the masks in Mistborn, the second era ones. Like, oh, how can you, you leave all your emotions right on your face, but you know, you have nothing to hide behind. Same with the listeners. They're like, oh, you can't just hum a different rhythm to mask what you're feeling. You know, everyone sees it all right on your face. So yeah, it's definitely a theme he likes to pull out. Yeah. The personification of emotions. Yeah. Yeah. I have that when Ash and I had first met the humans, she'd see the little listeners that they had with them, a hapless little tribe who were trapped in dull form. And it's just, they're not trapped in dull form. A piece of their soul was ripped out, like, violently by the capturing of Ba Edo Mishram. It's interesting, too, that it's genetically passed down, like it's an inherited spirit web kind of defect, almost, that they lack Mm -hmm. this identity. Yeah, there's, like, something missing as a part of their genetic sequence. And that's something that I think we're all hoping that we're going to find out more about in the future, that the listeners were able to break the bond with Bado Mishram before the imprisonment in the gemstone. Mm -hmm. The next couple of paragraphs, it gets into talking about the dull form. And essentially, one thing that I noted about this prologue is that it's a nice little synopsis of things that you get in bits and pieces throughout the rest of the book. So it's, they're talking about the parchment being slaves, the best servants, and very, for lack of better terms, dumb. So again, it it encapsulates all this information that's piecemealed throughout the rest of the series and thrown into one little chapter. So Eshenai goes wandering throughout the castle kind of makes some observations. I found her observations here very interesting because we see in Way of Kings that she's very interested in having the Parshendi attempt to do art and culture. And she, you know, she really wants to have this art form come back. And I feel like this is a nice allusion to where she got the inspiration for the desire to have that culture for the Parshendi. Yeah, I actually have part of that that I have highlighted that I wanted to read out because it shows a a little bit of contrast to what she's feeling here. It's in that moment where she's walking through the palace and thinking about the art and she thinks to herself, uh, beautiful and terrible. People who were bought and sold maintained this, but was that what freed the humans to create great works like the carvings on the pillars? It's a contrast to someone who's watching people of her own race and species just not even being treated as if they're slaves even. They're just treated as property themselves. At one point, they were even told that Parshmen were very expensive slaves, as if they were supposed to be proud by that. It's like, that's not the brag you think. (sighs) We pay top dollar for, you know, your cousin, honestly. Like, you should be, like, really honored that we would, we think that he's worth so much money. It is very backwards, yeah. emeralds. Like, that's pretty (laughs) cool. That's the epitome of the definition of privilege right there. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. 
Ah. It also just like feels like it should be a photo definition right beside condescension and patronization. Like that is mm-hmm. you're taking people yep. down and using it to build others up of the same species. <laughs> I don't. I don't get that. And then she even, like you were saying too, like she slips into thinking about how if they had that type of thing, could they be making art themselves? And without even realizing that, you know, it probably was the listeners that actually made Colinar, you know, that point aside. Yeah, it's more than likely that everything we see in Colinar actually is from that listener era. Yeah, or all the, you know, different inlaid gemstones that are described almost the exact same way as they describe the ones in your theory, yeah. you know, the same ones. Like they're like, mm-hmm. oh, like, oh, this strata here of gemstones. How is this here? And maybe it used to be a spread city too. Who knows? Uh. Yeah, you see the crudeness of the war camp on the Shattered Plains. The Soulcasters definitely. Yeah. You know, they can create aesthetic landscapes, but they don't have that skill level to create what's being described here. Yeah, like carved pillars. Carved pillars and stuff, I could see how they could do something like carve it into wax and then turn it into stone then. Mm -hmm. Maybe, yeah, but that's like pushing the boundaries for sure. And then in her wanderings, Eshenai finds the king. And then I had a question for you guys. Gavilar is surrounded by two officers. We know one of them's Amram, two women in long dresses, and one old man in robes. Do we know who those, outside of Amram, who those other four people are? Hmm. I think when I was doing the timeline digging, I couldn't find answers myself, but I was definitely very curious because the meeting with Amran was mentioned in other chapters, so I was like, oh, maybe we'll get some clues, but yeah. he meets with Kalek and Nail completely separately, and Collect isn't described as an old man in the, quite the same way, so... Yeah, Collect is usually described as a shorter Alethi with a round face and small nose. Nail is described as a Makabaki wearing a black coat and frequently has a crescent-shaped birthmark. And one thing that Sanderson's really good about is even if he doesn't specifically name people, he explicitly describes them. So, you know, so I don't think any of these people are any of the heralds because they're not specifically described that way. The only one that I could think of maybe is the old man in robes might be the ardent that's mentioned in the prologue of Rhythm of Wars, the Fabriel expert who Navani gets really excited about meeting but gets dragged away from. That's a good guess, honestly. I'm going to pull that up and just see if she describes him, because he was older, too, because my brain was just thinking maybe it was one of the Storm Wardens that he always kind of totes around, but I kind of like it being the Artifabrian guy better because it ties into a name drop in the next book chapter. Mm-hmm. Let's see. She tells the two elderly Ardens. Yep, so elderly, that's a tick right there. He was specifically invited by Gavilar and not told to Navani, which means that he probably didn't tell her because he specifically didn't want her to know about it. Oh, he's keeping all this, all the Sons of Honor stuff. Yeah. Top secret. Because he was a big old jerk. For sure. But maybe like if he wasn't there for that reason, maybe he would have told her about it. But like because he was involved. And this is actually timeline it for it that I have written down. Venley's caught by nail during that meeting. Navani finds Gavilar in that meeting where he's talking to Nail and Kalek. Yes. Then Eshenai finds Gavilar during the Sons of Honor meeting with Amaram. So I think that this actually, this could potentially be that Artifabrian because she sees him before she even meets up with Gavilar. So if he's actually on his way to the meeting with the Sons of Honor as well, that could very well be him. I think it still works out. They do need an Artifabrian for what we know they're doing. They're trying to capture 
your spreading gemstone. True, true. Mm-hmm. I think you just solved it. I, I think that might actually be who that is. Way to go, Leia. I'm convinced. You've convinced me right now. I'm totally convinced that that's who that you're, is. <laughs> you're pulling too much weight. Jeez. Like, you're... Seriously, I'm... Yeah. You're making the rest of us look bad. <laughs> No, honestly, I didn't catch that at all because I and I really thought hard about that. Like when I was doing the timeline mapping up, I didn't even think about the art of Fabrian. But of course, well, and luckily I was on the Navani chapter, so her desire to talk to him really stuck out with me in that chapter. So listen to that episode. I go on for it a little while. Yeah, I do have a shot in the dark about one of the two women in long dresses. Okay, we know that Ela Sadius is a member of the Sons of Honor. Mm-hmm. And it wouldn't be out of the question for her to be at this dinner, and it wouldn't be out of the question for her to join in on this meeting. Not saying there's any real support, just could be. That kind of crossed my mind as well, because we do know that the wives of the officers were frequently the ones that wrote down minutes and took correspondences. So it would be somebody that Gavilar would have to explicitly trust, which might mean that the other officer might be Sadius himself, and he's just not- I was just gonna say, yeah. Literally mentioned. Yeah. That's something I hadn't even thought about, is whether Sadius was privy to any of his Sons of Honor extension stuff, because we don't get anything, any hints to that from his few point of views that we get, but if he was- privy to all of that stuff in the background as well mm-hmm. i think it's definitely possible that that would be her on the members list he is not listed as a member but that doesn't mean as a known member maybe uh, yeah he's not listed as a known member i mean there's only like five known members so because yeah. eli could have gotten in through the connection to amaram but yeah you know yeah i think it's worthy i don't know i wouldn't i wouldn't put it past ela to plot behind sadius's back anyway also true yeah well i was gonna say just the opposite because of the nature of the relationship that ela and sadius have they're very close they're very reliant on each other they scheme together so and they bounce off of each other's skills so i feel like if one of them was a member the other one would just be a natural partner with each other I hate to say it, but, like, out of a lot of the relationships in Stormlight Archive, Yile's and Coral's Sadius's kind of seems pretty legit. Yeah. They make a lot more sense. (laughs) They do. Like, they work very well together. They make a lot more sense than Gavilar and Navani. Oh, for sure. Match made in the Tranquiline Halls. Like, they're both (laughs) conniving. (laughs) Relationship goals? (laughs) yep kind of hashtag like oh man we're both terrible people and we love each other for it exactly yeah and i love exactly. you know we you've got strengths and that match with my weaknesses and i trust you explicitly and you're wonderful you real strong i do real spy stuff like let's do it <laughs> yeah one's the murdery and one's the spy <laughs> any more theories about who those five people may be I think we've got four of the five. So that's pretty good. At least. Pretty good. Okay, from the book, going to do a quick reading. I'm only, for the most part, going to read the Gavilar quotes. Gavilar is asking Ash and I to deliver a message to her leader at the Council of the Five. He tells her, Now, now, I'm going to help you, Ash and I. Did you know I've discovered how to bring back your gods? 
My ancestors first learned how to hold a sprint in a gemstone. And with a very special gemstone, you can even hold a god. Eshenai interjects, saying, Your Majesty, please, we no longer worship those gods. We left them, abandoned them. Gavilar continues, Ah, but this is for your good, for ours. We live without honor, for your gods once brought ours. Without them, we have no power. This world is trapped, Eshenai, stuck in dullness, lifeless state of transition. Unite them. I need a threat. Only danger will unite them. Our enslaved parchment were once like you. Then we somehow robbed them of their ability to undergo the transformation. We did it by capturing a spren, an ancient, crucial spren. I've seen how that can be reversed. A new storm will bring the heralds out of hiding. A new war. Ashenai is objecting. She says, insanity, our gods try to destroy you. Gavilar continues saying, I thought you'd be pleased to hear that we are allies in seeking the return of your gods. You claim to fear them, but why fear that which made you live? My people need to be united, and I need an empire that won't simply turn to infighting once I'm gone. I seek for an end to something that we never finished. My people were radiant once, and your people, the Parshmen, were vibrant. Who is served by this drab world where my people fight each other in endless squabbles without light to guide them, and your people are as good as corpses? So there's a lot of really good information there that Gavilar gives us that's alluded to in the epigraphs in both Words of Radiance from the songs that the listeners have, and then later in Oathbringer regarding Barado Mishram. Yeah, for sure. There's a lot of real meat to that. Oh, yeah. There's so much information in those several paragraphs. I like how he used the word drab, like they do on Nalthus, to describe people who have no investiture, to describe the world where a bunch of people lost their base level of investiture and their identity when they imprisoned it. So it was a nice little carryover. I think the word choice was intentional, where he called them drab, because it's all been sucked away and trapped away in this gemstone, so... Effectively, each parchment is born a drab, effectively. Yeah. Oh, interesting. I totally missed that reference, Kevin. It was only when you read the word drab that it jumped out at me at that point. Well, it fits in the context, but when we're sitting here trying to like Mm -hmm. listen to it and suspect out the meat to it, we kind of dive in on that little bit of what there is there. I also liked how he called them vibrant as like a counterpoint to radiant as well. So vibrant because they hear the tones and vibrations to describe that in a way as well. I thought that was a cool comparison. Yeah, and then he gives the history, which we can, because spoilers, we know that he's been working with Neil and Kalek, who were both at the imprisonment of Bado Mishram. So this is where he would have gotten the history of how that ancient crucial spren was captured in a gemstone and would be wanting to reverse it. But where he got the information about a new storm, I'm not sure where he would have gotten that information. Well, those would be the Stormfather visions then, because those are the same ones that Dalinar gets, where it says a new storm is coming. Oh, they do talk about it. You're right. The Everstorm comes. Yeah, I think that was the, that was where you first hear that word is why they call it the Everstorm. Okay, you're right. I think you're right, though, in the sense that Dalinar didn't get the information about the imprisonment there. And I think it's even mentioned that Nail was present at yep. the imprisonment as well. Yep, yeah. Nail and Kalak were both present. Mm-hmm. Yep. So I think your point still stands that he definitely got information from them and he figured out a way to quote unquote reverse it, as he says. So 
And I think that reversal is the coming of the Everstorm, as I think he thinks he's supposed to bring that about. After Eshenai is finished having her world shattered by the size of a map, she gets given a sphere. Uh-huh. A sphere that is described as having dark light that somehow glows. An aura of blackness. And we know because spoilers that this is, it has void light in it. I think it might even be anti-void light. I don't know. Yeah, this one's specifically void light because he gives it to her okay. in the Navani chapter, the Navani prologue in Rhythms of War. Navani does see him with two different ones. So at that point, he has the anti-void light and the void light. Afterwards, he gives the void light here. So chronologically in Kevin's timeline, if you will go back to that episode, he gives the void light to Ashenai here to give to the Council of Five to show them as kind of a gift, I guess, or a token of good faith. And then later, chronologically later, bookwise earlier, when Seth kills Gavilar, At that point, Gavilar gives him the anti-void light, which he goes and hides. And eventually, Seth, in Rhythm of War, gives it back to Navani. That's where we get the whole explosion and your Thiru, etc., etc. But this one, particularly here, is the void light. It must be, yeah. It's just, it's so funny how they describe them very similarly. I think that they even note on that when Navani's first showing it to the scholars, she's like, Oh, it kind of looks like Void Light, but now that I look at it more, it's not quite the same, because yeah. maybe if Esh and I had described a warping, then that might make it hint more towards anti, but since she doesn't say warping, she just says it sucks the light in. Okay. I think that might be the hint. Well, and I can't imagine why he would want to give the Parshendi the anti-Void Light, because that's almost a weapon there. I don't know that Gavilar and the Sons of Honor have figured out what anti-void light is or does. I think that's why that Artifabrian was there. Yeah. Trying to probably do research on what the void light and anti-void light does. Yeah. And you're making me think too, like as I'm looking through the Navani chapter to see that she does say that he has several that glow with an inverse of light as if they were pits of violet darkness sucking in the color around them. So it's hard to know if she's saying, does he have multiple void light ones? Does he have multiple anti-void line? We, we only see him give the one away. Yeah. But did he disperse the excess to his followers around him? You know, was one of them given to her? Like, it's definitely left ambiguous what types he had. I'm making the assumption that he would have to have given them away. Yeah. Because we only physically see him give this one to Eshenai and then the one to Seth yep. before he dies. And then Navani actually goes through his pockets and is looking for... For those strange, uh, you know, the scholar in her, the brain turns on, she goes through his pockets and doesn't find anything and is quite disappointed. So it doesn't seem that any of the Alethi have them. So I'm making the assumption that Nail and or Kalek took any of the extra gemstones. Yeah, I wonder where those rest ended up, yeah. And I just made the assumption that all of these were brought to Gavilar by Nail and Collect, because I think we discussed before, both Nail and Collect were there. Bado, Mishram. So there's two ways that the singers got the void light. One was by providing a song, the song of prayer to Odium. So basically giving tribute to Odium, and then Odium would give them void light. Somehow, Bado Mishram, who is an unmade, so, you know, not God level, 
but he was able to create void light and give it to the Parshendi during the false desolation. Almost like Odium's perpendicularity in a way as well, yeah. Yeah, so I can't wait to find out more about that because there's really only a couple of places where we get that reference later here in the epigraphs of Oathbringer. So it says, chapter 80, the epigraph says, Ba'ado Mishram has somehow connected with the Parsh people, as Odium once did. She provides void light and facilitates forms of power. Our strike team is going to imprison her. I think that's the only direct reference in all of the books to Bado Mishram imbuing the Parshmen with power and forms. Yeah, definitely a lot to unpack. Yeah, and I've always wondered how Nail and Collect ultimately ended up. Like, was there just like little void light gemstones hanging around? We do know that they hold their power much longer than the stormlight powered gemstones which need to be renewed every storm that's true the void light gemstones just seem to stick around and since it's been thousands of years since the last desolation there would have been no ever storm there would have been no you know Baado Mishram's captured in her little gemstone and Odium's on a braze so there's the fact that these gemstones still have that void light in them is pretty astounding yeah, I think even in, in Navani's chapter that I think he was saying that he was able to get the gems off of Braze, like they were being able to bring them back and forth from Braze. Mm. So somehow they must have gotten someone, possibly Axendoth or a unkeyed metal mine terrace person to somehow store the connection and allow the transfer. So they somehow got these newly infused gemstones and then they got someone who was smart enough to figure out everything Navani and Raboniel figured out in Rhythm of War of how to turn it, isolate it, turn it into anti-void light. You know, there's so much missing in terms of like how those gemstones were created, then transferred, and then given to him, and then experimented on to see the end result that we even get now. It's so much mystery still, and honestly, I think you had mentioned earlier that this chapter isn't that long, but I'm honestly astounded at how much we've been able to kind of pull from the little bits that we've discussed so far. This is the longest of the prologue chapters that I have seen so Accidentally. far. Accidentally. <laughs> <laughs> Can't go off by chapter length. <laughs> Seriously, yeah. It's very, and we're not even done yet. The thing about Sanderson is he's really good at showing a lot of what he wants us to see. Mm -hmm. There's not a lot of the secret going on in a lot of these prologues. Like, we have some things going on in Yasna's that we can dig into, but for the most part, it's what's going on <laughs> from this person's point of view, what's going on over here, what's going on over here. But this is the one where we get a lot of motivations for a character we don't know that much about. Gavilar died at the beginning of the series, and we know almost nothing about what he was doing apparently trying to start the Everstorm seven years early. Yeah, and this is where it's short, but we get a lot of that information. So we get Gavilar's motivation. We get information about the history of the world, you know, that why the, the singers turned into the Parshmen and how the listeners broke off and allusions from secret songs and even the size of the world. So, all right. Do we want to fast forward to Esh and I talking with the five? Sure. All right. So after Gavilar gives Esh and I the gemstone, uh, he asks her to take it to the five, which she does in her exasperated state. So this is all off camera, essentially. Esh and I and the five vote to have Gavilar executed. Finley and Ulim 
work with Clade to buy Seth on advice from Nail. So they already have the assassin conveniently handy after Gavilar creates his own death sentence. Yeah, I actually have that part highlighted. It says in the books that a Clade slave was an assassin. Clade claimed that a voice speaking to the rhythms had led him to the man. And we know that that is um, Ulim kind of invading on Clade a little bit, pointing him in the right direction. We know in a Rhythm of War that Venley's plan was to bring the listeners there to scare them by how scary the humans are. It wasn't to take out a king or kill anybody. True. It was to scare her people. So I don't I don't even think Clade had this planned or Ulim had this planned or anything like that. It- they got lucky. Mm-hmm. Basically, the rest of the chapter is Ash and I just kind of mulling over this decision and watching the assassin leave, and she's almost mourning what's about to come, because she just came to this treaty signing with so much excitement about you know the potential for adventure and learning and art and culture that were going to enrich the Parshendi, and now they're literally just going to war. It is a very chilling thought from Esh and I's point of view here. And yeah, I'll do a little readout. After a frantic debate, The five had agreed that this was a sign of what they were to do. Long ago, the listeners had summoned the courage to adopt dull form in order to escape their gods. They'd sought freedom at any cost. Today, the cost of maintaining that freedom would be high. She played the drums. She felt the rhythm. She wept softly and didn't look as the strange assassin, wearing flowing white clothing provided by Clade, left the room. She'd voted with the others for this course of action. Feel the peace of the music, as her mother always said. Seek the rhythms, seek the songs. She resisted as the others pulled her away. She wept to leave the music behind. Wept for her people, who might be destroyed for tonight's action. Wept for the world, which might never know what the listeners had done for it. Wept for the king, whom she had consigned to death. The drums cut off around her, and the dying music echoed through the halls. And that's the end of the prologue, with this chilling thought of consigning a world to war. And she was right, because she didn't even realize that Gavilar got what he wanted yeah. without even realizing it. Gavilar got what he wanted, and she got the opposite. She got war, war, not even to stop the greater terror. Yeah, accidentally brought back the gods. participated in bringing back the gods that she in this chapter were so scared of fervently against yeah, yeah terrified of thank you for joining us today as we enjoyed the prologue of oathbringer as always journey before destination and we hope that you'll return to oshar with us again next time 